it's old timey crimey. I am Christy. And I am Amber. And we are here with part two of the true crime tale of yore, the Clara Smith Heyman story. Part duh. <laughs> part duh. If you haven't listened to part one, please go and listen to that. Or if you like being confused, just keep doing what you're doing. That's yeah, fine too. That's either way. Yeah. Everybody makes their own choices in life. And, uh, you know, you do you. But previously, we had Clara Smith Heyman who was a young girl in a small town in Oklahoma working as a clerk in a, like a general department store kind of deal. And in comes Jake Heyman, a local businessman, lots of money, or he will eventually have lots of money, and a politician. His name is always in the paper. He's well known. And he sort of butters her up over time. She doesn't really like what he's selling for a little while, but uh, eventually she does, and they hook up and become a couple, even though he has a wife, Georgia, and two children. Well, he also sent her to school and hired her, so she worked for him, and he was her boss. Yes, yes, that too, that too, yes. They were living in a hotel in adjoining rooms, and... Jake's wife, Georgia, had taken the kids and went to Chicago to live. They were kind of separated. But some things have been going on in political spheres. The new president-elect is Warren G. Harding. And his wife is a cousin to Jake's wife. So now it's looking like Jake is going to need to, you know, start things up again. Reconcile. Reconcile with the wife in order to take advantage of this particular political inn that he's found. A couple weeks after the election, there is some quarreling going on between Jake and Clara outside the hotel. Then somebody sees something going on in their rooms where he's holding up a chair and swinging it downward. And then a little while later, he shows up at the hospital, having walked there two blocks, and he has a gunshot wound. Clara leaves town the next day after visiting him briefly, and she's nowhere to be found. Jake dies. They're still trying to get Clara. They do find one very important and one very interesting thing. Her diary. And that's where we left off. Did I miss anything important, do you think? No, I think that's good. Let's get right to the juicy. Yeah, let's get to the juicy. So this from the Oklahoma City Times regarding the diary. And they call her Mrs. Heyman because, oh, yeah, that's right. She married his nephew. Forgot about that part. There's well, so much. And, and he very well, and by a lot of accounts, paid the nephew to marry her so that she could have that last name and then disappear. And they eventually did file for divorce, but she got to keep that name. And one of the theories going along with this is so that when they traveled together, Instead of being like a boss-secretary relationship, he could easily say, oh, this is my niece, and people wouldn't look twice. Yeah, it lends the setup a kind of a sheen of respectability that it definitely doesn't have in reality. It doesn't. It doesn't. But this is, this is a political scope that we're talking about, mm -hmm. and appearances are everything. Yes, very much so. So the Oklahoma City Times says, Mrs. Heyman's document carries a remarkable warning to other girls. Know your man is her advice. They also call it one of the strongest moral stories ever told and refer to it as a sermon in itself. It only goes back as far as March 1920, 
the year of the shooting, but several months before in the spring, she says repeatedly throughout the diary that she's unhappy. And she does refer to Jake as the colonel. Some people knew him as the colonel or thought he was a colonel. That does not appear to be the case, but whatever. Maybe he made really good chicken. Maybe, maybe. The colonel came and I visited with him all afternoon. Evening uneventful. Not very happy. She talks about quarrels they have, how she has so many reasons to be unhappy. Tireder than I can bear to be. Tired. Not more from exhaustion than from disgust with my life. She goes through March and April with ups and downs, some mundane moments, and then this startling entry from May 12th. Got up with a vague sense of trouble coming, and it came, about 3.30 in the afternoon. What transpired from then until 5.30 shall ever remain a nightmare in memory to me, and will go down in my mind's history as one of the most terrible experiences of my entire life. In the form of a man, there was a demon who tried to frighten and terrorize me, and although my life hung by a slender thread, I am glad to remember that I did not show the slightest weakness, and at some future time, should I be found stabbed or choked or beaten to death, I want the world to know I made a good, clean fight for my rights, and that I have never been a coward or a sneak, or guilty of unfair play. Although I've dealt with a cunning, tricky devil, when my ship of happiness goes down, it will go down with colors flying. Before another day passes and ere my life is taken, I want to leave this word of warning to any other girl or woman who may be ready to embark upon the sea of companionship with a man. Let my, The sea of companionship. Sorry. <laughs> Just caught that. Let my poor, sad, broken heart, crushed hopes, and blighted life be a warning. Know your man before you give him your soul. And when I say know him, I mean not only the good and sunny side, the sugar-coated side, the pretentious, flattering, false side, but know the side that is not at its best. Know the side the world fails even to see. Know the side that comes to life only in the presence of four walls and you. Know him at his worst, not his best, before you sell your soul and become ever afterwards his slave. For once you give it to him, you can never get it back again, no matter how hard you try. A woman only has power, real power, once with a man. And that is when he is madly in love and wants all she's got to give. Once given, the charm is broken. For him, the battle is won. This is not justice, but it is a tradition as old as civilization. And in spite of the light that is coming, not yet come, it remains a cold-blooded fact at this time, 1920. Women fit their lives to men. Men never fit theirs to women. I do not wish to be misconstrued as meaning that I think all men are bad and wrong. Far from it. But it has been my misfortune to give all I had to give to a man, a living devil regardless of what the people may say, before I knew that I had cast my lot astray. So something big happened that day. Something, yeah, wow. I mean, most of her diary entries are just kind of like little facts or, you know, a, a notation of her mood or something like that. Just a short little paragraph. And this day she went on and on. I should have warned you that quote was going to be a long one. Hey, no, that's totally okay. But yeah, so I, I think she's totally right, though, that that disillusionment that she had in the beginning is completely shattered at this point. Or the illusions, rather, that she had in the beginning. They're shattered. They've turned to disillusionment. Well, I think she was disillusioned that he was a good person. I think we're, we both have different meanings of disillusioned. Maybe. Maybe. She was deluded into thinking he was there a good person. That's our problem. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Yeah, she really, she feels that she's seen a side of him that the world doesn't see. 
and well, she's and that's, very that's upset every with that relationship, side. though. Like, well, sure, yeah. Any relationship that you get into, like the only two people that know what's going on in that relationship are the two people in it. Even when they are writing in diaries and talking about it, they're mm-hmm. still the only two people that know what's happening. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, it is essentially when it comes down to it, it's it's impossible to know for sure what any of this is about. <laughs> Judging by her comments, I do feel that this was another confrontation regarding them getting married. Especially, you know, now that he's away from his wife. Actually, I would wonder at the timing when the convention was. Because that's when he met Warren G. Harding. So his realization that they had, you know, both of their wives were cousins might have been him. Oh, God, now I need to look at the timing of that. (laughs) I see him in Missouri, I see him in Kansas, I see him in Texas, all in March. So I think he was on, like, a campaign trail. Yeah, and they could easily have met in Kansas or something, too. Yeah, he started going throughout Texas March 3rd. It would make sense that Harding and Jake met around that time, then. I wouldn't be surprised if they met, and that was when... It was during that period that people were swaying, especially one political operative, Doherty, who was, like really behind Harding getting the nomination, that they were really swaying people like Jake Heyman to support him because Heyman supported somebody else at first. So she then goes on to talk about how she'd given him the best years of her life, 10 years altogether. He'd promised he'd leave his wife and marry her and how that had all been a lie. She says she did try to leave him, but even then, quote, he ran after me and brought me back with new promises to do the right thing by me, only to break them and to crush my soul again. So she's she's going through it. I mean, she is also with a, another woman's husband, but, <laughs> you know. Well, and it seems to me that she, like, regrets that because she was sold a line of bullshit. Yeah, I don't think she ever regrets the fact that it was somebody else's husband, though. That's the thing. That never really comes up. She never really says that she regrets it was with somebody else's husband. She just regrets that she got in with somebody who turned out to be other than what she thought. Now, the second installment, they've published this over like three or four days, is billed as, quote, Mrs. Heyman sets forth the trend of events leading up to the Heyman tragedy, clearly indicating a growing distrust and at all times a hatred for the man she is alleged to have eventually killed. Then after that, they praise her writing skills. She does write poems and includes them in the diary. I only picked the ones that are applicable. I'm not going to be willy-nilly with my poetry reading. But here's one. It's called Mine. Not through life or what may follow shall my love grow less for thee. You have filled my life forever, mine, for all eternity. Why farewell? Why break love's bondage? Would you drown love's fire with tears? No, my life is cast forever and will measure not the years. She also says uh, regarding... How she feels when she's around Jake. I purchase happiness by the hour and enjoy 30 minutes of it. So there's definitely some conflicted feelings going on there. Yeah. And it's poignant at times reading her diary. Uh, She went to California with a friend. They passed Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks, famous stars of the time, who got married, on their way east. Uh, They were heading east for their honeymoon. But... Clara and her friend didn't get a close look, and Clara said of of that, quote, I am getting curious to see anyone who I believe happy. Even old pictures of myself thrill me. And that is incredibly sad to me. 
She also had dinner at the same restaurant as Charlie Chaplin and said he appeared to be a very sad man in a very deep mood. An interesting note on June 1st. She says that one year ago to the day she was in Rochester, Minnesota, convalescing from an operation at the Mayo Clinic. The Mayo Clinic. Mustard Hospital. <laughs> some memories, she says about that. There's some stuff that's going to come real soon that's going to put that in a different light. Uh, this is just me being me. Uh, she also notes that her friend Phyllis, whom she was traveling with, got a permanent. Took six hours and cost $30. That's $430 today. Wow. Getting back to Jake, she calls him a madman. She says, I may soon be as mad as my master, for he is that. They were right to call her a particularly good writer. She has some good moments here in September. Um, she's very, very low. Another day which means nothing to me. I cannot control my depression. I cannot regulate my actions at all. I am a living atom of misery. And for what? For nothing. And I know it. One may see a star and long to draw near it, though one knows it is always beyond reach, unattainable. You may stumble forward to your ruin, led by its light. Here's just a line from a poem that struck me. Uh, in the fall, she wrote this poem that included the line, Can't you read within my heart that in death alone we'll part? So there's also references to a baby Jack. Oh, no. She calls him her wonderful, quote, dream baby. And after one visit with him says, Oh, that I might have him for as I long to, my very own. But fate is unkind to me. If when baby Jack is big enough to realize the truth, the turmoil and strife of my life has ended, and I can make of him a fine man, then I will not have lived in vain. This does not sound like a nephew or a cousin. This sounds like she has a child. So that's what I'm thinking about that operation at the mayonnaise clinic a year ago. Yeah. So that's really something. Mm. And her final entry, two days before the shooting on November 19th, Idle and my diary at hand. But what to write? I am not so ill. My cold is better. What is illness? What is a cold? What is wealth? What is poverty? What is failure? I am unhappy. The future holds nothing. What can make up for these two facts? Nothing. And so I am ill, no matter how fares my cold or any other trivial thing. I am ill and great physicians might stand about me in hordes, merely nodding their heads in melancholy unison. My illness is beyond them. They can neither iron out souls nor patch up hearts, unfortunately. Poor medicos, poor me. Now, that's the end of the diary. But there's a really interesting letter pinned to the last page. It's signed Francis, and that's with an E. So as far as I'm aware, the feminine version of Francis is dated 20th. There's no month, no year. It addresses the recipient as my dearest pal, and it's pretty intimate in like an emotional way. Whoever this letter was to and from, they're very close. They're very close. Now, it really is unclear whether this letter was to Clara or Jake. The newspaper said it reached Jake Heyman apparently on the day he was shot. 
Whatever its significance, it is clear Clara thought enough of it to preserve it. So it's just weird that they say it reached Jake Heyman, and the paper says the sender was female. So this is from the very ending. Everything kind of crescendos to this point. Goodbye, good luck, and may your health come back anew. And if you ever need me, you can rest assured I'll be waiting, also watching for your commands, and will do all I can to fulfill the request, whenever you may ask it. I am blue today, but good, and hope you are speeding along contentedly and look back to see one who you have made, and remember, I love you, and will always be for you, regardless of what may happen. There's definitely a closeness there. I don't know what's going on, and that still remains a mystery. I'm, I'm not going to promise that we haven't a, any sort of curtains opening to help us understand what's happening here. This is essentially all we get, at least in the newspapers, of the Francis letter. So I don't know. Was this a Francis that Jake had on the side, and Clara found this letter and pinned it in her diary sort of as a reminder of why she should end things and, and just let things end with Jake? Is it Francis with an E, but still a guy? And this is something she has going on with somebody else? It, it seemed like more than a family connection, and it seemed more than, like, very close friends. I'm just going to say. There's, just, there's definitely some heavy intimacy throughout, but nothing explicit. So that's what we have from Clara's voice from the past. So we've heard from Clara. Now it's time to hear from the other Mrs. Heyman. Georgia, Jake's actual wife. She calls Clara, one who came along with her beauty and paraded with Mr. Heyman. She says, quote, I have lived with Mr. Heyman between the four walls, and no one could be kinder than he. If he was cross and ugly to Clara Smith, it is because she must have provoked his wrath by doing something which she should not have done. So, but she also, she's kind of conflicted. She says that Clara is kicking them when they're down, but she wrote the diary, like, before all this happened, <laughs> and she didn't choose yeah. to have it published, Sure, she probably didn't want it published, uh, but also insists that Clara can't write like that, and the diary must have been manufactured by, quote, some unscrupulous newspaper man. So it's very curious. Uh, she says, The picture which has been published does not resemble the Smith person, for she is much older now and much worse looking than when the picture was taken. So there's definitely some anger going on here. It's earned. It's earned. It is earned. But at the same time, like, I don't, I don't know that it was all Clara or really any of, of Clara because this is like icky balicky kind of stuff when she was like very young and then groomed. Sure. Mm -hmm. She was literally groomed. Literally groomed to be his secretary uh, and then Slash other stuff. other thing. And then he's, he's telling her that like they're going to get married and sure. if they ever have a kid that he'll support the kid. But then maybe sends her off to get an abortion. I think she went off to have the baby. Oh. Yeah. I think she went off to have the baby and then somebody else was looking after it. Possibly her sister. Oh. So he told her, I'll take care of any children that we have. And then he sends her off to, you know. But you can't keep it. Yeah, you can't keep it. Just because I said I'll take care of it doesn't mean that I'll take care of you while you're taking care of the child. So, like, I, I feel like Clara, in a lot of ways, is a victim here. Yeah, I agree with you. And the wife is definitely a victim, too. But, like, I saw one account where she actually refused a divorce back when this all began. And she went to Chicago. She said, no, I'm not getting a divorce. That would look bad. I'll just take the kids and stay in Chicago and you give me all your money. 
I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case because, I mean, there were no moves being made towards an actual divorce. It was just separation. Yeah. So, yeah. She has a lot to say about Clara and about what happened uh, regarding whether Clara should be prosecuted. She says Jake told her he shot himself accidentally and she can't believe anything other than what he told her. Quote, consequently... I would not prosecute Miss Smith if she is apprehended and brought back here. But she also claims that Clara engineered the marriage to the nephew and lied to him that his uncle had told her to marry him. She has a lot of enmity towards Clara for the last name thing, that Clara still has the Heyman last name. That seems to be really her sticking point. Not, you know, whether or not Clara shot her husband and killed him. I don't think that's a great loss for any of the women in the story. (laughs) Really, right? And so she also says, and this is when it first comes out, that Clara and the nephew are divorced. And a few days later, there are records found confirming this. The marriage was said to have taken place in February 1917, even though in Clara's story it was 1916. And divorce applied for in April of the same year. So it lasted less than two months. Yeah, and the official divorce decree, May 23rd, 1917. Yes. but In Texas? Sure. Well, I think that the husband was from Texas, or he lived down there. And yet, the next year, Clara is listed in the city directory as Heyman F.L., so Frank Lewis, the nephew, husband, 510 West 25th, USA. The USA means her husband was in the Army, uh, Frank Heyman would be a lieutenant in World War II, so that kind of tracks, I guess. Of course, there are other sources that say in the following days, as more speculation is sort of riled up by these revelations, that Jake married Clara off to his nephew not just for that era of respectability, but in order to make sure that his child could have the Heyman name. Yep. That's important. A lot of blocks falling into place here in this this. Tetrisy, Tetrisy episode. So on the heels of the publication of the diary and Georgia Heyman's statements, a woman matching Clara's description eluded federal officers from the Department of Justice at a San Antonio department store, then fled, quote, in a high-powered roadster. Then there's this revelation that there's this newspaper man in San Antonio named P.M. Ross, and he says he talked to Clara and she confessed her whole story to him. She told him she'd killed Jake for the sake of their baby Jack. She was said to want a woman jury if she ended up on trial. So all women in the jury box. And she was living in San Antonio waiting for a plane to take her to Mexico. Other reports say that she was already in Mexico or on her way to South America and gave little credence to the report that she was in San Antonio, so that reporter is getting a lot of doubt thrown his way. Georgia Heyman is dealing with her own drama. Back at her apartment in Chicago, four men bribed her maid and broke into her apartment. When they didn't find what they wanted, they got information from the maid as to where to find what they were after. It was in the landlord's apartment, so they went down, they bum-rushed him, and then they took what they were after, which was letters and papers of Georgia's that the men stole. The Ponca City News says, quote, the thieves are believed to be interested in the suppression of their publication. What's she hiding? Hmm. Finally, on December 8th, the county attorney changes the charge against Clara from assault 
with intent to murder, to murder. Three days later, word comes that Clara has arranged to turn herself in at a lawyer's office in Fort Worth. And this is a big to-do. There's newspaper men and movie cameras. and Everybody's waiting and waiting and no Clara. There's a caption of a photo of her in a paper that cracked me up. Easy to look at, but hard to find. I like it. Yeah. I like it. Days pass and she starts getting less and less newspaper coverage. Even the newspapers, the ones who have the biggest vested interest in keeping this on the front page and keeping it interesting, are starting to say, this is getting a little old. But they're not saying like, oh, Clara, you should come back and get this all straightened out. They're saying, just stop looking for her. For God's sakes. Leave the girl. Stop it. After all this starts dying down, then it gets rustled back up again. She's found in Mexico six days before Christmas. Another newspaper man in Texas, Sam Blair, does actually get the story straight from her in Chihuahua, Mexico. He says her tale, quote, details the rebuffs she first gave, and finally, those she failed to give Haman, then a poor man, but then, as always afterward, a pudgy masher. A pudgy masher. A pudgy masher. I love that masher keeps coming up. It makes me so happy. I really enjoy the phrase pudgy masher, and that is totally a euphemism. Well, the funny thing is, is that in the paper, I first read it as pudgy master. <laughs> and I was like, oh, well, sure. She does call him that sometimes. She says, you know, like, I'm, I'm going to be as mad as my master. He's but master of my pudgy. Then I was delighted to see it's masher. He's a pudgy masher. Clara had the journalist feel her neck where she bore scars from what she said were his many blows. And she says that, well, I, I don't know how to preface this. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. The bullet which killed him should have been fired 10 years ago. I was advised to kill him, yes, by several of the biggest men in Oklahoma, but I loved him. I still do love him. Yeah, she also said that she's like, I loved him, but I also hated him. Yeah. She, she said more than once. She's always in just kind of multiple frames of his mind. He's just always got her spinning like a top. Clara tells the journalist that she fled blindly to Mexico without help from her family and that she was taken in by several state officials because somehow she always manages to get the, the important people to pay her notice. They took her to Chihuahua City and, quote, established her in a quiet and elegantly appointed hacienda and taught her the rudiments of spiritualism. I will say that the tale, as the reporter Blair tells it, is a little too full of mysterious Mexican men. Hmm. Feels like it's starting to become like a cliche in just his couple of articles that I read. These mysterious Mexican men also show him a typewritten sheet that they say is the trance revelations of a medium, but he's not allowed to divulge what they said. Come on, buddy. Don't cock block me on this. I want to know what the medium said. Is it like Scientology? <laughs> so, Clara tells the story of the night of November 21st. She says that she and Jake had planned for that to be their last day together. He was going to get back together with Georgia and make a go at attaining political stardom. But he got drunk, and then they argued, and then the gun went off by accident while she was trying to escape him. I'm going to get to that more when we talk about... Some other things she says, because it's pretty much the exact same, except that here we get some aftermath in what she says, which is missing from that description. So we'll join her on her visit to the hospital the next day to briefly see Jake. This is what she says he said. 
Clara, I am going to die. Yes, I am. There isn't a chance in the world of my getting over this. You did right, Clara. You should have done this before. You did right. And remember this. I'm going to tell the world I did it to myself accidentally. And after I'm gone, you are going to be provided for as long as you live. I don't actually buy that one. <laughs> Not a bit. No. No. I also don't buy that he told her he loved her more than anything, including his children. Well, did he even care about his kids, though, really? Yeah, that's a good question. We don't know. It seems like he sent them away never to be seen or heard from again. Yeah, it kind of does feel that way. She tells the reporter, I'm going back to Ardmore gladly. I have nothing to fear. Where is there a jury that would find me guilty after I had told it the story I have told you? She tells him that people are saying that Jake died without a will, but she knows there is one, and it leaves her a quarter of his fortune. Remember, 15 to $30 million. That's a lot of money. In old-timey dollars. For some reason, the will also is supposed to stipulate that she gets nothing if she shoots him, or so she's been told by his friends, who encourage her for this reason, to go along with the story that there was never any will. But she's sure they'll work that all out once she's acquitted, of course. The sheriff is from the the county, is on his way to the border to collect her. And meanwhile, her ex-husband, Jake's nephew, Frank, has been missing since before the shooting. Well over a month. He has a new wife who's telling his story to the papers, as we mentioned before, and just a few days after Clara comes forward, Frank shows up filing a divorce suit against the new wife on the basis of cruelty. She nagged and abused him continually, and during the summer of 1920, while they were living in Phoenix, she threatened him with bodily injury. Against his wishes, she consorted with other men almost daily and accompanied them to places of amusement, not returning home until midnight. She also attempted to shoot him and tried to stab him with an ice pick, but they buried that lead way, way down. Wow. Right? That's way worse. No, 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 no. Her carousing with other men is far worse than her trying to stab him with an ice pick. Well, exactly. Literally, like, if it bleeds, it leads, people. Come on. It's what it should be. But they're like, we just won't talk about that. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. That's okay. Back to Clara. The sheriff gets her and accompanied by her attorneys, they head back to Oklahoma. She is, of course, going to plead not guilty and is scheduled to do so on December 24th at midnight if she arrives on time. A huge crowd goes to meet the train, but they are doomed to disappointment. She ends up arriving just before noon on Christmas Day. Merry goddamn Christmas. That's a hell of a Christmas. <laughs> right? The delay was because she suffered a nervous collapse in Fort Worth and had to wait a little while before she could travel again. We get a description of how she's looking in her outfit. She was wearing a very beautiful cloak of beaver combined with squirrel over a simple navy blue serge dress, a plain dark brown sailor hat over which was draped a black veil of delicate mesh. In one hand, she carried a small navy blue sick bag. Okay, she threw up. And she is feeling ill and faint. So at the courthouse, while they're getting everything together, the judge himself prepared her a restorative medicine. Well, that was very lovely of him. Very kind, very kind. She makes Bond immediately, and then they have a little photo shoot out on the uh, courthouse steps. At first, she poses with her attorneys, her uncle, the court attorney, the sheriff, and the judge. 
And then one of the photographers is like, can we just get one of Clara with the sheriff and the judge? So everybody else leaves and she's standing be between them and she says, I love to stand between two big men. How do you feel about sexy mules, Clara? Then she's off to have Christmas dinner with her family. She's also reported to have visited Jake's grave that day, somehow driving in a car that Jake had owned. How would she even get her hands on that? Where was it? What, what's happening here? Yeah, because she's been in taxis and trains. So where did this car come from? Yeah, right? magical car. Now, there's a lot of talk about when they get the jury together. It, it is a possibility, I guess, at this time to have women on the jury in Oklahoma. But people are questioning, well, would she get convicted with an all-female jury? Because that seems to be what she wants. A pastor even gives a sermon about that saying that she'd be better off with a male jury because women are so quick to condemn those of their own sex. The Oklahoma City Times gets in on this action. They published a survey that they did of five locals asking them if they thought an all-female jury would convict Clara. Four said no, one said yes. Guess how many women they asked? Five. One. Wait. They asked four men and one woman if they oh, thought an all-female jury... four men and one woman. Okay. I didn't realize that was all they asked. Yeah, they just asked five people. I was thinking it was five women, and four women are like, no, she should be fine. And one woman goes, oh, yeah, no, she's, she's going to the chair. No, three men and one woman said an all-female jury would be fine. One man said she'd be convicted. Because of the same exact reason that the, the pastor had in his sermon. He thinks that man went to church that week. Hey there, beloved listeners. If you're enjoying this episode, then you absolutely should check out our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey, which is the absolute best way you can support the show and get something in return. For just $5 a month, you get five bonus episodes a month. On the Patreon, we frequently talk about old-timey crimes you won't hear about anywhere else. Crimes that have been forgotten by time and erased by history that you won't read about on Wikipedia, Murderpedia, or really anypedia. We also delve into the old newspapers for the wacky wild crimes like the thieving lion tamer and the spaceman intruder. Or talk about strange, delightful customs like nutting day while learning about the time people rioted over cheese. <laughs> So come, we can't even talk about it in our own promo without giggling. I love Nutting Day. <laughs> nutting Day is the best day. So come check out the Patreon for more of the weirdest, wildest, and most shocking old-timey crime. That's patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. Where's the link? In the show notes. <laughs> I knew I was not going to get through Nutting Day without giggling. It takes a couple of months, but by March, the trial has begun. It'll last about 10 days. They actually managed to get the jury assembled in just one day. It's very quick for how much press this case has gotten. Yeah, that doesn't really seem like it's on the up and up to me. And it's, it's not female at all. The Oklahoma City Times proclaims that, quote, one bachelor, one married man, and 10 fathers compose Clara's jury. They range from 33 to 73, which actually, the age limit is 60. But the 73-year-old that they called in, he waived that because he feels that it's his duty. You know, doing a civic duty. So he's like, nah, I'm, I'm bored. <laughs> nothing, I have nothing better to do. 
The Oklahoma City Times gives the most detailed information on the jurymen that we've ever seen. Each of them gets a few paragraphs. Most of them get a quote in there. There's a general description of where they come from and where they live now, their occupation, and details on their children, including age, sex, and marital status. Wow. There is also a group photo of them. Wow. Yes. Meanwhile, Georgia Heyman is at the murder trial for her husband's young mistress, and they set it up so that she and Clara have to sit just a few feet apart. This is from the Tulsa World. The defendant and victim's widow were forced to sit just a few feet apart at a council table. I want to see her sent to the electric chair, Hammond's widow told reporters the first day of the trial. Every married woman, every mother should pray for her punishment. No punishment is bad enough for her. I think it's fair to say that she's changed her mindset a little bit. From, uh, you know, Jake says it was an accident, so I believe that, and Clara shouldn't be prosecuted. Now she wants Clara to fry. She also said, there was one article where she said that um, had had she been a, a less nice woman, she would want to burn Clara's face with acid so she wouldn't be so pretty. Oh, wow. Wow. She's like, but I just couldn't do it. But I thought about it. I should have done it 10 years ago. And then none of us would be in this situation. Wow. That is, uh, that's a regret to have, I guess. I wonder if she said that because Clara said that, that Jake said she should have shot him 10 years ago. And Clara also said I should have shot him 10 years ago. And I wonder if exactly the 10 years ago thing is Georgia being like, well, I wish I'd have thrown acid in your face 10 years ago. We it, all have regrets, bitch. It very well <laughs> might have been. It very well might have been. And the, the press is not treating Georgia very nicely either. She's having a little bit of a rough go. Uh, the Daily Oklahoman refers to Clara as the petite defendant and calls Georgia Heyman the old woman. Yeah, that's not very kind. That's not very kind at all. Uh, there is a member of the prosecution, H.H. Brown, who also called Clara's mother the old woman. Unlike Georgia, Clara's mother has some defense in that Clara's lawyer jumps in that Mrs. Smith, in his estimation, was equal to Brown's mother. So that woman, my client's mother, is just as good as your mother. So you better not call her the old woman anymore unless you would call your own mother the old woman. What kind of gentleman are you? You can call Georgia whatever you want, though. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the lawyer gets cheers from the courtroom for that. The first witness is a garage employee who said he'd seen Clara with a pistol several times. He also said that the day before the shooting, Clara came to him and asked for the two spare rims to be taken off the back of her car and for two extra casings put on as she was going on a long trip. She said she was going to California, although that only comes out of him on cross-examination. Interestingly. Then the day after the shooting, Clara came and asked for the tire change to be done quickly as she had far to go. The garage employee said Clara was very nervous and he saw no bruises on her face or hands. The prosecution also has a witness in Jake's pastor to whom he made his peace with God before he died. The pastor reports that Jake said, I have wronged no man. I have de deceived no man. Clara and I have been living in adultery. We both did wrong. I, being the stronger of the two, should not have done it, and she should not have done it. The pastor also tells the court that Jake had said he'd paid Clara three times to get out of his life. She just kept coming back, but the last time was when she came to visit him in the hospital. 
But the pastor also says that Jake didn't say one way or the other that anyone had shot him and never, in fact, talked to the pastor about how he happened to be shot. He didn't even give him the accident story. So at some point during this, things are getting a little heated in the courtroom and there's an argument between attorneys. That's when we learn that one of Clara's defense attorneys is J.B. Champion, and he is the twin brother of Judge Champion. As twin in, brother. Yeah, as in the judge, in the case. We've got a judge and a defense attorney who are twin brothers. From the paper, Judge Champion ordered the bailiff to remove his twin brother, J.B. Champion, unless he followed the court's instructions to seat himself. The twin brother did sit. So weird. And it's... So- So weird. That's not enough. The former county attorney is Russell B. Brown. He's the one who filed the murder charge. The defense calls him as a witness. And then the prosecution cross-examines him. On the prosecution side is special prosecutor H.H. Brown, big brother to county attorney Russell Brown. There's there's two... Is this town very small? Apparently. There's only like three families. Yeah, everybody's related. And they're all in the courtroom. So we're still on the prosecution witnesses. There's the former police chief who'd been with Jake in his office the afternoon of the shooting. He reported that Jake had had three drinks and was not drunk when he left. Now his story, straight from Jake in the hospital, was not the accident story. He said that when Jake was in the hospital... He told him that Clara had walked up to Jake while he was lying down for a rest, put her hand on his head, and fired into his side. The former police chief said that Jake disarmed Clara, and she said, let's call it an accident. The defense asks, uh, hey, why haven't we heard this story up until now? Nowhere in the papers, sheriff, county attorney, nobody knows this story. And the former police chief says it was to protect Georgia and the children. He didn't want to say it until he absolutely had no choice. Likely story. Right? That driver, the taxi driver from Texas, testified. He was the one who went to the paper with this whole story that Clara had confessed to him when he was taking her from one town to another. So he pretty much tells that same story to the court. He says she had two pistols and that she'd shot a man in the stomach, said he'd hoped he'd die, and they discussed the best gun for killing a man. He also reports that he saw no bruising on her face and hands. Then we get this little revelation on cross-examination. The paper in which he made his original statement gave him 60 bucks for it. That's $865 today. So he was paid to make that original statement to the paper. And then memorize it and come say it again in court. Basically, yeah. So this is Saturday's court session. By Monday, that dude has disappeared and there's a warrant out for his arrest on a charge of perjury. There you go. And the defense has a witness testify that that dude has a bad reputation and had been charged with highway robbery. Not exactly the most reliable witness. Georgia took the stand. She testified that Clara had two fur coats early in her relationship with Jake, while Georgia had none. The Daily Oklahoman is a little, a little peeved at this. Quote, fur coats, rather than her outraged wifehood, apparently, were the dominant thought in her life then. And Georgia really, she was taken to task in the press pretty badly. She did allow her 10 or 11-year-old daughter to sit through what was called the salacious testimony presented by the prosecution. Quote, 
In the minds of many women, especially mothers, one of the outstanding features of the trial of Clara Smith has been the presence of little Olive Bell Heyman, despite the repeated order of Judge J.B. Champion that all children under the age of 16 should be removed from the courtroom. That's too young to get involved in all this. All this? Yeah, like learning your dad had an affair with this girl. And yeah, it's, it's a lot. And hearing about your dad's death, that's too much. Okay, so this is while she was on the stand, that acid thing that I had mentioned. Oh, okay. So um, she said that she debated with herself many times whether, whether to throw acid in Clara Smith's face to disfigure it so she would not be beautiful and attract Heyman's attention. Wow. With tears in her eye, Mrs. Heyman said she could never bring herself to that point. Oh, if only I had, she said repeatedly, I might have had him now, and these children might have had their father. Her kids were there when she said it. Wow. That's, I really wish therapy had been around and better at that point in time, because those kids needed it, especially little Olive. We get testimony from the business manager, Jake's business manager, Ketch. Uh, he says that Clara came to his office after the hospital. He did say that uh, Jake told him to give Clara $5,000 and tell her to get away from Ardmore and stay away. She denied a lot of his testimony. There was no $5,000. Oh, he didn't tell me to leave, blah, blah, blah. And the former county attorney testified that Jake had told him the shooting was an accident and he didn't want Clara prosecuted. This is the man who filed the murder charge. So then we get that testimony, remember, in, in the description of the night in question, we have that woman across the street from the hotel. Mm -hmm. So yeah, she can see well enough into their rooms that she can describe the positions of their beds in the rooms. And she saw a man raise up a chair, and she's able to describe all of this. We also get, again, we're on defense witnesses now. We also get a barber who had been down in front of the hotel and saw an altercation between Clara and Jake the night of the shooting between 6 and 7. Quote, I saw Clara drive up and join Mr. Heyman, who jerked her into a chair and asked, where the bleep have you been? They bleeped it out. Where the... Yeah, I got nothing. Balicky. Where the balicky have you been? Do not be cursing here, Mr. Heyman, Clara replied. He said after this, Clara went into the hospital and Jake followed her. Clara's sister and niece testified that she came... To say goodbye to them, they both saw bruises on her throat, breast, and hand. And four days after that, Clara was supposed to be at her parents' house in El Paso. And her mother testified that she, Clara still had bruises that day. So five days after the altercation that we're about to talk about. Because we're going to get to Clara testifying in her own defense. Hooray! And she really uh, takes command of the room, even to the extent that... Sometimes when her attorney tries to pipe up, she's like, no, 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 sit down. I'm, I'm, I'm doing a thing here. I am still talking. <laughs> exactly. I'm sorry. Did my continued testimony interrupt your inane question? <laughs> That's about true. Yeah. She's the last witness. The Daily Oklahoman says, quote, despite her tears, her eyes were not red and her appearance was pleasing. The accused woman presented the most perfect bearing of any witness called by the state or defense so far in the trial. She talks about that day. She says they had breakfast at 11 o'clock, and then Jake left. It was a Sunday, and he usually went to his office on Sunday afternoons. 
she just assumed that that's where he was because that's where he generally tended to go. It's his routine. She said he came back mid-afternoon and, quote, we had a very pleasant conversation. Then he laid down for a little nap and told her he was going back to his office as someone was waiting for him there. So I guess, excuse me, be back in a minute means I'm going back to my room for a nap. I'll be back in an hour. She cleaned her room, read newspapers, and she was getting ready for an upcoming trip to California. Then around 6 p.m., she got in her car and just rode around for an hour. She said she, when she got back, Jake was sitting in front of the hotel in a chair. There was another chair next to him and then the hotel door. Quote, he immediately grabbed me as I passed and shoved me in the chair and said he wanted to talk to me and used profane language. Much as the barber said, she asked him, stop making a scene, please. Quote, if you want to curse me and abuse me and be mean to me, let's go to the room. So apparently this is okay as long as it's not in public. She's probably used to it. It's been 10 years. She really is, yeah. Although she does say that this is worse than ever. So she said he kept cursing at her. And then she'd realized that she realized that she'd left the lights on in her car and went to turn them off. When she came back to Jake, he threw her in the chair again. She again told him, we should do this in private. Don't talk to me like that in public. Quote, he was drunker and crazier than he had ever been in all the years I had known him. She said he usually drank good whiskey and he wasn't usually crazy like that. So she thought maybe he'd gotten some bad whiskey or something, it seems. Bottom shelf. Yeah. Well, it's 1920, so it's probably some bathtub hooch. She said she was terrified of him and that she saw a look on his face that she'd never seen before. She locked herself in her room and locked the adjoining bathroom. But when Clara called down for room service, the porter came in and Jake slipped in behind him. Clara reported that at this point, quote, I wanted to keep him away from me for 24 more hours and I could go to California and wait for him to sober up and come to me looking the sweet, kind lover he had been before. He paced her room, running his hands through his hair. She said that was kind of a classic tell that he was agitated. Then he swore at her again, which seems like another classic tell that he's agitated, asking her where she'd been and grabbing her. And then he choked her. He choked me and choked me until I was blind and couldn't seem to think. And this is another point where her attorney tried to interrupt her and she said, just a minute, I will finish the story. Then she said that Jake hit her a bunch of times, then threw her on the bed and hit her some more. He kicked her. He bent her fingers back and tried to break them. He did this thing like twisting the skin on her wrist to try to like de-skin her wrist. He said he would cut her throat. Then he reached for his knife. It had fallen out of his pocket while he was sleeping and he couldn't find it. Quote, he looked around and in the meantime he was choking me and beating me very bad. I cannot remember all of it. It is too much for anybody to remember. I endured that sort of torture. Her attorney says, did he make any remarks to you? And Clara goes, well, I am getting to that, Mr. McLean. <laughs> She's very much like, no, this is my moment. You just hush. She explained that he accused her of going riding with somebody and she denied it. Then Jake found another knife and said, I would just as soon slit your throat as smoke this cigar. When he reached for that knife, I knew the time had come. I consciously or unconsciously or somehow reached back and in my purse on the windowsill, I got my little gun. I asked him to stand back and let me pass. Her attorney asked her what she did with the gun and she said, what did I do with it? What would anyone do with it if they thought their life was in danger? And the attorney's getting real sick of her shit at this point. He's like, never mind that. What did you do with it? She says, I held it on him. He did back away, sort of behind a chair, and put his hands on the back of the chair. He did not raise his hands. I didn't ask him to. 
I passed him, and I wasn't very far from him when I reached the door to get out. He backed around to the door between our rooms, and then I went to the door to get out. She made it to the bathroom, and then she backed up to the door and was trying to unlock it with one hand behind her back. And she says when she did that, because she was trying to get to the other room and then escape, he turned off the light, quote, and raised the chair to strike me and did strike me. And in her telling of this, that's the moment that he basically knocked the gun out of her hands. Quote, it went off as it fell, or I pulled the trigger or, or something as he hit me. I don't know. The gun went off. She always gives multiple options when talking about this for, oh, well, something happened and the gun went off. I don't know if, you know, the chair hit it or it hit the floor or what happened. It could have been any of these things. Yes, yes. She's asked where she got the pistol, and she says Jake told her to buy it and even gave her the money for it. And that he insisted on walking himself to the hospital, even when she tried to call the doctor, and told her, you know, look, I'm going to tell people this is an accident. You should do the same. Let's keep our mouths shut about this. It'll be fine. After he left, she changed her clothes, because hers were torn, went out to her car and put it away, and then went back to her room until morning. Then first thing, she went to visit him and said uh, he asked her forgiveness. So at lunch break during her testimony, this is, whew, the attorney general sets to work reading 56 letters that Heyman had sent to Clara. So these are letters from Jake to Clara, which the defense requested be read into the record. So apparently these were maybe just found or only just now decided they were important to enter into evidence. So on the lunch break, Georgia sees that this is happening, and she goes to offer her assistance. She sits there reading the letters that her dead husband sent to his mistress, who's on trial for murder. That's an interesting task to volunteer for. Yeah, it's very strange. She has some comments on them. They're all old letters. They were written way back in 1914 and 1915, when he really, really was infatuated with her. There are none written lately. As for the courtroom crowd, a lot of people stuck to their seats during lunch because they didn't want to lose their spot. So they let in sandwich and drink vendors who did some pretty good business because people had come as early as 5 a.m. to get their seats. They weren't moving. It's like waiting in line at a, like a concert or something. <laughs> exactly. Clara is back after lunch talking about the aftermath. She says she took advice from Jake and his business manager and left town. Said she was trying to get to San Antonio on cross-examination, the attorney general, who is about the same size and shape as Jake was, has her point the gun right at him while she poses, as she says, like, she's like, you stand like this, this is how I said that Jake was standing, and I'll stand here and point the gun at you. <laughs> so she has to kind of reenact it with the prosecuting attorney. She broke down when talking about how after he was shot, he said, I am hit. And both of the attorneys actually have her get off the stand to demonstrate with the gun. This is, everybody's just like, please, will you wave this gun around, young woman? They love demonstrations. They really do. They really do. Demonstrations, reenactments, big on reenactments. Well, even, like, I know that I was reading through some of the trial stuff, and they'd be like, okay, now you be Clara, and I'll be John. And so they really liked Making it more like a play, almost. Really, yes. You can see why this was commonly seen as entertainment by the masses. Because it's treated that way by the people involved. They make it so. And I don't know if it's a chicken or the egg thing, but it's definitely an interesting phenomenon. There's testimony from both Clara and her father that she was 29 at the trial because there was this question of her age 
and, quote, whether she was a mature woman when she took up her association ten years ago with Heyman. So, Clara is quite, she's magnetic. People like to watch her. They like to listen to her. They're rather fascinated by her story. And this is a time when good old Hollywood is just starting to really bloom and blossom and flourish and be a big part of the fabric of society. And so, of course, Clara is offered some roles in movies during the trial. She says she didn't take any because she was worried that that might make the jury think, oh, maybe she is guilty. Maybe she did all this for attention. That would have been bad timing. That would have been a horrible timing, yes. The jury goes to deliberate. Georgia and her son actually left. They did not stay for the verdict. And Georgia wouldn't learn the verdict until later that night. But Clara would know it in 37 minutes. That's how long it took the jury to come back from deliberation with a verdict of not guilty. She goes and shakes the jury's hands, then kisses the foreman. Quote, he blushed through his stubble like a schoolboy caressed unexpectedly in public. Ooh, I love that. (laughs) I really enjoy that. (laughs) It's hilarious. The Oklahoma City Times says this. Boy, are they on her side here. In the courtroom here in Ardmore, it is not only Clara Smith who has faced a jury of her peers and been harried by a charge of murder. It is instead all women of all time who have listened to the whisper of men, of a man, and who have lived to pay in heartache and soul bruise for their faith. Clara told the reporters who were asking for her reaction and what she was going to do next. She said she was going to join the film business in order to teach, you know, tell her story. She said she didn't want to do it for salacious purposes. She wanted to, quote, teach the lesson of her life to America's young womanhood. Not long after the trial, Clara announced that she had signed a two-year contract with uh, the illustrious and renowned Oklahoma Movie Picture Company of Oklahoma City. Reports varied as to the monetary side of this contract. The New York Times said she'd get a $25,000 advance and 50% of the company's profits. Moving Picture World said she would get $50,000 a year. Elsewhere, it was written she got $1,000 a week. So at the very least, she'd get the equivalent of $400,000 today for two years. At the best, the contract gave her $800,000 per year. And those are both, those last two figures are today's dollars. It's a quite a wide range. It seems like at one point she announced she was breaking her contract with them, but it, there's so many different stories told, it's impossible to know. And Ardmore is not having it. The city bans films that glorify those who lead immoral or violent lives, like almost immediately, as soon as it's announced that she has a movie contract. They're like, no, this movie will not be shown here. Never going to happen. Yes. And it's not going to be shown in a lot of places. It opened in San Francisco. Uh, They probably didn't know it when they made the choice, but not a great decision because... The Fatty Arbuckle scandal was just beginning at this point in time. And uh, that was kind of a big sensation and a big scandal. So Clara bringing this movie to San Francisco, people were like, nah, we've had enough here. And so the police arrested the producer on indecency charges during a screening. Then they tried to run a second screening and the police came and confiscated the film. It did run in a few towns in Oklahoma, but it was, like, banned in New York and such. It really just was kind of doomed from the very beginning. There were a lot of roadblocks put up in its production. People were threatened that if they worked for this production, they wouldn't have any job in Hollywood ever again. You know, you'll never work again! This is the IMDb synopsis of this movie. 
The film Fate was based on the true story of Clara Smith Heyman, who murdered her Oklahoma millionaire oil man boyfriend, Jake Heyman. Clara was acquitted of the charges, began a love affair with John Gorman, the president of Gorman Pictures, and starred in the film version of her own story, fulfilling her lifelong dream of being a movie star. A countrywide protest, however, quashed her dreams, and all copies of the film were burned, leaving only a still shot to mark its former existence. So that's all we have, is one shot. It showed up in a couple of small towns in Oklahoma, but most places weren't having it. Everybody was against her. Uh, In the book, Looking Past the Screen, John Lewis says regarding uh, an essay by uh, Mr. Anderson, Anderson argues that movie companies sought to regulate stardom in the same manner they sought to regulate film content. If Clara Smith Heyman, who murdered her lover, could become a star based solely on her criminal notoriety, notoriety enhanced in an unsanctioned runaway film production, then the established film companies would almost certainly lose their battle to establish the cinema as the approved leisure preoccupation for children and other audiences. So basically, we can't have people who have been on trial for murder, even if they've been acquitted, being movie stars, because then people think if we show our movies to children, it's immoral. And so all that remains of this, as we said, is a single still. There was a marriage born of it in August 1921, less than a year after she shot Jake Hammond. Clara married John W. Gorman, her director and producer. Looks like they divorced four years later and he died in 1936. Yep, on grounds of, not abuse, what was the word? Cruelty? Cruelty, there you go. Cruelty and intoxication. Ah, was she the one who filed? I think she was. Filed against him? Uh, yes. Hmm. Yes, she filed. The irony, though, um, I did see in one paper is that Georgia had also gone and gotten married again in 1921. Yeah, she got married on uh, New Year's Eve in, in 1931 to a banker. And then they both filed for divorce at the same time. I missed that. That's amazing. I found one article about this, and they had both filed for divorce at the same time, both of them for cruelty. And I think when Georgia saw that, she goes, never mind, and they reconciled. (laughs) She was like, I will never be on the same path as that Smith woman. Absolutely not. Never mind, banker man. Let's get back together. This will be fine. And uh, Clara pretty much vanished after that. Uh, Can't even figure out when she died what she did with the rest of her life. It really is so much easier to hide when you're a Smith. It really, really is. She did return to Ardmore. I believe it was like two years after her divorce. She returned one time and said that she was happier than she'd ever been. I found one source that said she died in San Diego in 1962, but I could not find anything to back that up. Other than that one source. Yeah, she just kind of faded into the background after her, her moment of stardom. And then as for some of the other players here, Georgia died in 1948. Uh, Jake Jr. died in 1985. And Olive Bell died in 1987. Now, Olive Bell is listed on Find a Grave as Loma. That was her stage name. Interesting. She was in vaudeville, where she played 20 different instruments. Wow. This from Find a Grave. She was also an experienced pilot, often piloting her own aircraft 
between show venues. Damn. So I guess maybe having your father murdered and having to go to the trial where his mistress is being... Hyper-focused. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she was already... She was a prodigy growing up. And, like, uh, the pictures that were published of her in the newspaper of Olive, she had her violin. Violin, xylophone, and then, like, snare drums, and then 17 other things. She was known to be incredibly versatile. And just, like, any instrument you need, you grab her and she'll play it. That's amazing. Yeah. So, yeah, that is, uh, ended on a high note, I guess. Olive Bell had had quite an interesting life. Well, I'm going to edit, I'm going to end it on a high note for me. Okay. So, I have one little tidbit that I fell down a rabbit hole for, and that is the hotel that all this happened at. The Randall, yeah. Burnt down five years after the murder. Really? Okay. Yep. Burnt to the ground, destroyed four stores that were in it as well. Wow. So, uh, yeah, that was the end of that. As You can't even go there anymore. It doesn't exist. Yeah. Hmm. Gosh. All right. Well, that is, yeah, fire is, of course, where you would end things. I like it. <laughs> Fire's your high note. Well, my, and my show notes for this were Boss Bang and Body. <laughs> I didn't come up with anything for this one. Strangely. I just, I don't know. I, I was, there was a lot of research to do. So I was just, there was a lot. I finally, finally, Amber, have for you... The recipe for banana cabbage salad. Oh, give me that banana cabbage. Can I isolate that and make that a ringtone? <laughs> <laughs> so here are our ingredients. Sliced or diced bananas, one cup. Teaspoon lemon juice, two cups shredded cabbage. Half a cup finely chopped green pepper. A teaspoon of salt. Quarter teaspoon mayonnaise. Two teaspoons prepared mustard. Combine bananas and lemon juice. Add cabbage, green pepper, and salt. Mix together mayonnaise and mustard and add to salad ingredients. Mix lightly. Serve with crisp lettuce. Serves four to six. <laughs> Amber's just very trying very hard not to vomit right now. There's a lot happening in here. Yeah. And honestly, do you want to know my biggest issue with this? Green pepper. It did surprise me when I saw the green peppers in there. Like, I don't, I'm not even mad at bell peppers, but does it have to be green? Because green peppers are by far the worst of all the bell peppers. Hmm. Can I have, like, a lovely orange? Yeah, yeah. Mayhaps a yellow? The yellow would complement the banana. Mm-hmm. So if I can switch it to a yellow pepper, I'd eat it. Okay, all right. Well, sans the lemon juice, of course. You can even leave that in there. That's fine. I'll pop a Benadryl. There you go. So that is banana cabbage salad, and that is the story of uh, Clara Smith Heyman. I might add more mayonnaise to that, though. Sure, why not? I feel like they're cheaping me out on the mayo. I mean, you're already eating bananas and cabbage. Dude, I fucking love mayo. You have to try my French mayo. It's really good. Just put it in my mouth. Oh, it's a squeezy tube. I can just... Oh, yes! Put it in my mouth! I'm going to squeeze the mayonnaise tube into your mouth. I love (laughs) white viscous things coming at my face. Anyhow, on that note... Um, so, you know, every, all the links for everything you need are in the show notes. I'm not going to go on and on, but there's social media, there's ways to support us and everything. So just take a look at that. You can also buy us a book on our Amazon wish list. You can buy some merch. You can buy some mayo and send it to me. There you go. Buy Amber Mayo. I love, I love mayonnaise of all kinds. So yeah, all the usual stuff. And Amber, what are you up to this week that is actually next week? Because we oh, recorded this so all we... on Monday have a project you don't know this yet but you do we have plans so what we're going to do is we are going to either go to flea markets or go to yard sales and we are going to find some sinks 
because we have hijinks. Sink hijinks, no less. Sink hijinks. We need sinks to place in front of doors to prank people that are dickheads. Because <laughs> it's really hard to open your door when there's a sink there. <laughs> I think... I think you're taking it just a half step further than the originator of the prank took it. I think he just wanted to put things around the the, the home. Yeah, no, so I, I want to fill somebody's garage with a bunch of sinks for the originator's original prank, but just so we have backup sinks and so we can continue this often. And like all colors of sinks too. Like I want to yeah. find like a good pink Maybe a teal. Like, get some really ugly sinks there. You'd have caught me like six years ago when I we were remember. redoing our kitchen. We had the pink sink. I remember. Yeah. I wish we would have kept it. But yes, so that is going to be our project is finding sinks. There we go. Okay. All right. To the flea markets we go. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. All right. Uh, so I guess that's what I'm doing too is I'm going to flea markets to find sinks. This is what I do as a person is I drag other people down with me. <laughs> all right thank you for listening and um do become a vaudeville star who flies your own plane in between gigs because that sounds awesome what a fucking badass everybody should do that 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 yes yes that sounds amazing yeah all right and we'll see you next week bye bye my sources are gene curtis on tulsa world mark anderson's essay Tempting Fate in Looking Past the Screen, Case Studies in American Film History and Method, Wikipedia, the Cedar Vale Commercial, the Freeman's Lance, the Daily Oklahoma, the Ponca City News, the Lawton Constitution, the Morning Daily Tulsa World, the Tulsa Tribune, the Oklahoma City Times, and the Daily Ardmorite. My sources are MuskegeePhoenix.com by Edwina Sinar, Wikipedia, IMDb, New York Clipper Newspapers, StrangeTimes.com by William Akers, Newspapers.com, Thank You Chris Garcia, Selma Times Journal, The Andalusa Star, The Daily Admirate, Cincinnati Enquirer, Durant Daily Democrat, Lawrence Daily Journal World, The Gazette out of Cedar Rapids, and Miami News. I went down a different rabbit hole now. Oh, okay. All right. Another hole for Amber. I, I like to just probe all the holes <laughs> I can find. You are a hole prober.